Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Hopefully you, are, you have made your way through Luke 8. Uh, we're going to be picking up in verse 40. But let me do this. Uh, let me transition by prayer, um, and we can jump into God's Word and uh, what He's going to show us this morning. Lord, you are good. We are so thankful for your grace and your mercy. This morning as we come and see your word and see two desperate people in need of healing, uh, Lord, may it give us comfort and assurance and peace that you are a God who heals, you are a God who saves, you are a God who frees us from our shame and sin and the bondage to it. You're compassionate and you care for sinners, Lord. And this is often humbling and baffling. And yet, as your word tells us, you are mindful of us. Help us to have ears to hear this truth this morning and wisdom to receive your word so that we may truly know you as king of our lives and that we would have certainty in the things that we have been taught about Jesus Christ and that we may grow in maturity and love for you. And as your servant this morning, use me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer, in whom I trust. In Jesus' name, amen. So leading up to this point, um, if you've been here with the last couple of weeks, we've seen two miracles that show Jesus' power and authority. We saw in verses 20 through, 22 through 25, the disciples were headed out to a country across the sea, and they get hit by a great storm. And Jesus calms the storm as they are freaking out. And they ask this question, who is this man who can even calm the storms, that can control nature? And as Jesus gets to the other side, as we saw last week, he heals a man of demon possession and is able to give him an identity, renew his mind, clothe him in righteousness, and send him out to go proclaim what he has done in his healing. And again, as you walk through that miracle, you should be thinking about that same question, who is this man? What is Luke doing in these miracles? And we'll interact with two people today. One, a woman who needs healing from a disease and a man who needs his daughter to be healed and resurrected. And again, Luke is helping us answer this question, who is this man? What's interesting is the only person that has actually answered this question is a demon. Last week, we see in verse 25, the demon actually said, this is Jesus, the son of the most high God. And what Luke is trying to point us to in these miracles is answering this question, yes, he is Jesus, the son of the most high God, and he alone has absolute power and authority over all creation. And this should bring us assurance. This should give us certainty in who Jesus is. Because if we remember back to the beginning of the book, right, we, 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 we see the subject and who it's being written to and, and why this book is being written. It's been written to the great Theophilus and it is to remind him, to show him, to give him certainty of the things he's been taught about Jesus Christ. And that is the same for us today. Luke is writing in such a way that we would have certainty and assurance 
in this most high God, in this Son who has come to save sinners like you and me, to heal us. And he calls us to draw near to him. He tells us, tells us through his word that there is nothing in this life that is out of his control. That one day when the kingdom of God has been ushered in and he has come back to take possession of what he owns, this world will no longer be as it is now. Yet, even as citizens of the kingdom, as we obey, as we go out and share this good news, as we take dominion in this land, the kingdom turns this world upside down. We fight back the darkness of sin with the light of the gospel. And so as we enter into this narrative of these two desperate people, what we find is they both are very similar in needing healing. And they know that only one person, a compassionate Savior, can give this to them. So I want us to see this power and authority on display as it comes through Jesus' compassion for both Jairus and this woman in need. And when we read through this story, I want you to see the comparing and contrasting that Luke shows us of these two people. One father, desperate to see his only daughter healed. One woman, desperate to be healed of a disease. One, a wealthy leading ruler, well-known with stature. One, a woman alone, shamed, who has lost everything. One who had known the love of his daughter for 12 years. And one who had lived with this burden, this disease, this shame, for 12 years. As Phil Riken says, here we meet two very different people, yet they are joined by their desperate need. They're joined by their beginnings of saving faith, and they're joined by their experience with Jesus and his healing power in their lives. And so this morning, my main point that I want us to take from this passage is that Jesus is a compassionate and healing Savior. Jesus is a compassionate, healing Savior, and he calls us to trust him in faith. And so as we read this passage this morning, my prayer is that we don't view these two people not in light of our own circumstances. I think this is what Luke, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is trying to draw us into. But we should take a look at these two people and realize that they too are just like us, a man, a woman, with real emotions, with real hurts and longings and pains and confusion. They are desperate for healing. And this is the tension that Scripture gives us. And I love it because it doesn't shy away from the human experience that we all feel. So we'll notice that this narrative starts with an opening scene of a desperate father's request. So let's take a look at verse 40 and what Luke tells us. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jarius, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And Jesus went 
The people pressed around him. Oftentimes, when you're desperate, you might know this phrase, desperate times call for desperate measures. Have you ever been there? In one of my favorite Denzel Washington movies, he plays a desperate father by the name of John Archibald. The movie starts by showing that John is a loving, caring father. He goes to church. He's a blue-collar worker at the factory, and he just loves his family. But his family has fallen on hard times and are behind in their home and car payments. And they don't know what to do. And you begin to see the tension rising in their story. And one night, as John's son Michael is out playing baseball, which he loves to do, he collapses. And he's rushed to the hospital. And he finds out that he has an enlarged heart and needs surgery immediately or he's going to die. And with very little money to their name, they find out that just a deposit for this surgery costs $75,000. And the surgery in total is going to cost around two hundred and fifty dollars to $300,000. And they're devastated. On top of this devastating news, John goes into work and finds out that his insurance won't cover the surgery. And there's no government assistance that will help this kind of this kind of need. John and his wife are told that the hospital is about to prepare to send Michael home and that they should prepare for him to die in their loving arms in the comfort of their care. And as the tension begins to grow in this movie, John and his wife can't raise enough support and they become desperate, so desperate that he makes action to save his son. He goes into the hospital and he takes the doctor who would perform this surgery and he holds him hostage with a gun. And he holds patients hostage in the hospital because he was desperate to save his son. Now by now, I hope some of you already know this movie. Maybe I'm too old in this church to recognize if you would know it, but this movie is John Q. It's one of my favorite Denzel movies to watch and it, it depicts the desperation of a father wanting to see his son live. Because we find out as he's going and taking people hostage with this gun, it really only has one bullet. And that one bullet was meant for him so that he could give his heart to his son as long as the surgeon would perform this surgery. As the climax comes and we find out that he's going to actually take his life, he gets a call that there was, in fact, someone who had lost their life and the heart could be transplanted and given to the son and the doctor throughout the movie you find out eventually says I will do this work pro bono and so the ending of the movie the son lives he's healthy John is convicted for what he did but as it closes and he's just walking into his punishment you see the son who is now healthy saying thank you dad thank you see John Q's desperation to save his son really portrays that saying, desperate times calls for desperate measures. In order to save his son, he went as far as he could because he was desperate. And this is where we find Jarius. 
Now, no, he's not coming to hold Jesus hostage, but he is desperate. His only daughter is dying. One would assume that he has tried everything in his power to help heal her. This is what good dads do. But nothing is working. No, not enough prayer, not enough medicine, not enough seeing the doctors. Nothing is working. And she is dying. So he goes to the man who he has probably heard is performing miracles. Maybe he has the saving power. Maybe it is true that he can truly heal my daughter or raise her from the dead. Maybe he's heard about the centurion's servant that he healed. Or maybe he's heard about the widow's son that he raised from the dead. And there is now hope. So he humbles himself and he goes to Jesus. Now you might be asking the question, what, what is a, what's a, such a big deal that he goes to Jesus? We've seen this throughout Luke already that men and women, fathers and mothers, leaders coming to Jesus asking for healing. But what we haven't seen yet is a ruler of the synagogue. We haven't seen yet a Pharisee, someone who is opposed to Jesus, humbling themselves and coming in their time of need. See, Luke keys us in on who Jairus is. He's the ruler of the synagogue in this town. And for us to understand what this means is basically for Jews, there was a larger temple in Jerusalem where they would go and worship. But in their towns where they lived, there were smaller synagogues, kind of like churches, where they would come and worship, hear the word, be with God's people, rejoice in song. And Jairus' job was to rule this. He was in charge of the synagogue's service. He would choose who led in song, in prayer. He would choose what passage of Scripture would be taught that week. He would choose who taught it. He was a man, as Leon Morris would write, a man of eminence in his city. He was well known. But he was also, most likely, a Pharisee. And what we know of Pharisees up until this point is that they are hostile and they are contentious against Jesus and towards his teaching and his proclamation that he is the Son of God. And yet here, here's a father so desperate to see his only daughter healed that he humbles himself. He falls at Jesus' feet and he pleads for him to come heal his daughter. Truly, for Jairus, this is desperate times leading to desperate measures for a Jewish leader. Like John Q., all he wants to see is his daughter healed and brought back to full health. He didn't care what the rest of the Jewish community thought. He didn't care what the leaders would say about him. He did not care about his reputation being ruined. All he cared about was his daughter being healed. He was desperate. And Jesus was the only one who could heal. And we find that he's willing. We see in verse 42, Jesus goes and they head out to Jairus' home. And yet as they're on their way to Jairus' home, we are interrupted by another, like him, desperate in need of healing. 
She is different in many ways than this ruler of the synagogue. But she too is desperate. And this is the second scene that we see in this narrative. A desperate woman on her last hope. But what I want you to see before we jump into this is a divine interruption. A divine interruption. We haven't seen this in Luke. I don't know if we've seen it at all yet. Where Luke is telling a narrative about someone and then all of a sudden Jesus turns and does something else while he's still on the way to do what he said he's going to do. But here we are divinely interrupted by this woman and her last hope and an opportunity for Jesus to show his power and authority and compassion to this woman. And so it struck me this week that Jesus would stop and heal as he is on his way to save this ruler's daughter. And one of the questions that I had running through my mind that I want us to think about this morning is, like Jesus, do we have time in our life for divine interruptions? Do we have time for them? Are we aware that Jesus might be using us in such a way to help or bless someone? The author of Hebrews even tells us this, that we might be entertaining angels when we perform good works, but we have to be available. Do we have time in our life for divine interruptions? Because busyness is one of those things where we love to share, hey, we are busy. What's life look like this week? Well, it's busy. I'm tired. Do we have time for divine interruptions? Let's keep moving. Verse 43, And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. She was desperate. Now, we don't know much about this woman. We don't know her name like we do Jairus. We don't know her age. We don't know much about her other than one thing. She has a blood disease. Most scholars would believe there's some type of hemorrhaging that is causing her to bleed out for these last 12 years, but we don't even know if this is true. We just know that she has been bleeding for 12 years. Interestingly enough, this is the same age that Jairus' daughter would have been. So for her whole life, this woman has been dealing with this disease. We also know that she has spent everything that she has to try to be healed. She has given all that she has. She has gone to every physician. She's given all of her money to try and be healed physically. The Gospel of Mark even tells us that she had suffered under many physicians, even to a point where it got worse for her. But we also know from Scripture that through the ceremonial laws and the requirements of Leviticus 15, this woman would be considered unclean. And that meant she basically had to either isolate herself or announce herself in shame to anyone that came near that she was unclean. 
Imagine the loneliness. Imagine the embarrassment. Imagine the shame. Just coming in here in a crowd and knowing I've got to tell every single person that I'm bleeding and we can't embrace because you would be considered unclean because of me. On top of that, she spent everything she could and she couldn't find healing. Twelve years with this disease. Twelve years with no human interaction. Twelve years with no physical contact. Twelve years with no opportunity to come to the place of worship and gather with God's people. Alone. In isolation. For most of our lives, we could probably think back to the times in which we could embrace and have community with one another, right? I would even say before 2020, we would not understand really what this woman might have been feeling when it came to isolation. But then 2020 came. We all had to isolate. We all had to distance ourselves. And we saw, we saw what that did in regards to relationships and community and not being able to gather, not being able to embrace. But this is what this woman has been living for 12 years We are made for community. We are made to gather. And then when this type of stuff happens, it shows that this is the effects of the fall and sin. This is not how it should be. And yet this is this woman's life for 12 years. And when she heard about this man, Jesus, and the healing miracles that he performed, maybe it could be the same for her. Maybe this man could save me. Maybe this man could heal me. Like Jarius, he or she knew she could go to him. And maybe he could heal her. Two people, worlds apart, in status and in social realities, they both had the same problem that they could not solve. They both were powerless to stop the effects of this fallen world. They both were desperate and needed Jesus' healing. Guys, is this not us before Christ? Is this not us before our faith in Christ cleans us, heals us, adopts us, brings us back into the family of God? You see, we have a problem that we could not solve ourselves. We needed healing that could only come from outside of ourselves because we are powerless to stop the fallenness and sin and the effects of the fall. We needed to be restored to the Father, but we could not do it ourselves. We needed something outside of ourselves to make us clean, to heal us, to forgive us, to save us. And thanks be to God, Right? As Paul says in Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were what? Dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and the kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, 
through faith. And this is not a work of your own doing. It is a gift of God so that no one may boast. It is in Christ that we have been saved through faith. It is the same faith that we see in Jairus and this woman to go and seek healing from Jesus that we too who believe in Jesus have received his salvific gift of grace for us. We are healed. We are made clean. We are clothed in his righteousness. We are adopted as sons and daughters of God and we are redeemed. This was our desperate need because of our sin. And oftentimes, as Phil Riken says, it is the most desperate sense of need that leads us to Christ, that leads us to finally turn to Him. And as the desperate people in this story discovered, He is ready to heal anyone who falls down before him in faith. So if you're here today feeling this sense of truly needing healing, Jesus stands here ready, with compassionate arms and care, ready to call you his own. And for those of us who have been called to his own, we can continue to be in awe that Jesus has healed us, that we are not who we once were, but we are sons and daughters of God. And we have received all of the gifts. And through the inheritance of the Holy Spirit, we will one day be fully healed and fully clean and fully restored when Christ calls us home or returns. This is what Jesus does. But I also want us to see what he does to this woman in this passage. Because the thing that I keep thinking about when I see this woman in need, see this woman in shame, see this woman who has not been able to embrace or be around people for 12 years, Jesus does something miraculous. He worthies the unworthy. I want you to think about a time when you might feel or have felt the most shame. Like if everyone in here knew what you were thinking, don't worry, you're not going to share it. But I want you to put yourself in that place as we read this next part. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, master, the crowds surround you and you're pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me for I perceive that power has gone out for me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and befalling before him declared in the presence of all, why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. And this is what he says to him, says to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Shame can do a lot. Shame can make you fearful. Shame, like her, can make you think this blessing that I've just received is going to be reversed. Ed Welch defines this in his book, Shame Interrupted. He says, shame is the deep sense that you feel unaccepted because of something you did, something done to you or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. And here is this woman being called out, being singled out 
Jesus is saying, who touched me? Now, what's interesting is Jesus is clearly asking this question knowing the answer. So there is a reason he's doing this. But knowing Jesus' compassion, as we'll see, and knowing his care for this woman, he's not doing it to shame her. But what about this woman being called out? What do you think she felt immediately? She's lost everything, money, relationships, places to worship, and now she's heard about a man who could heal her, and she thinks, if I can just touch his garment, I might be healed, and then it happens. And as the story says, she starts to leave, and Jesus asks, who touched me? Now, some of you may be reading this story with the lens that this seems a little bit superstitious, right? Why didn't she just go up before Jesus and say, heal me, I'm in need of healing? Because all the things that I just explained, she couldn't be around people, she had to announce to people that she was unclean, she probably had a sense of shame, and she thinks, if I can just touch him. I'm desperate enough to do anything. This is my last hope. And now as Jesus calls her out, she might be thinking, I've lost everything. But as Jesus asks this question, who touched me? We know through his compassion and his care, he is not singling her out to cause her shame. No, I believe what he's doing is he is worthying the unworthy. I don't believe Jesus asked who touched him because he didn't know. I believe he called her out to reverse her shame. Because what does he do is he, he brings everybody around and then he makes her the spectacle and says, my daughter, your faith has made you well. In front of everybody who would have known that she was unclean, she is now clean. In front of everybody who she would not have been able to embrace, she can now embrace. In front of everybody who she could not worship with, Jesus has said she is worthy to worship with. He is giving her a sense of identity. He is giving her worthiness back to her. And guys, this is what Christ does for us. He worthies the unworthy. He gives us his righteousness. We are now seen as sons and daughters of God, adopted into the family. God no longer sees our sin and shame that we've committed, but he sees Christ. And he delights in us. But more importantly, what we find here is that he saves her. He not only heals her of her physical ailments, but he saves her. Look at this word, daughter. Yes, it's a compassionate word, but it also is pointing to now her adoption into the family of God. You are no longer defiled by your uncleanliness. You are made clean by my righteousness. I have taken your uncleanliness, and you have taken my cleanness. Your faith has made you well. The Greek word here means sozo, which is salvation. You have been made well. You have been saved, not just physically, but spiritually. Her, ma- her faith has made her well. And as we should understand when it comes to salvation in biblical terms, this actually means wholeness. That she has been made whole. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we have been made into a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. This woman has been saved physically, but she's been saved spiritually and been made whole. And in front of the entire crowd, Jesus says she is worthy because she is his daughter. What a beautiful depiction of salvation. 
and healing and compassion that we have from this Savior. But I don't want you to forget that there was something else going on. I'm sure that Jairus didn't forget as he's waiting for Jesus performing this miracle, hey, my daughter is dying. Why are you worrying about this woman right now? Yes, I see the compassion that you have for this woman, but can't you come heal my daughter first and then come back to her? What I believe is happening here is that Jesus is trying to help Jairus' faith as he heals this woman. But can you imagine his tension? Jesus said, yes, he's coming to heal, and now he's just stopping for this woman? But look at Jesus' response coming back into the first scene. Luke bringing us back into the tension of this father desperate to see his daughter healed. This is how Jesus responds to him. So while he was still speaking, so as Jesus is proclaiming this salvation to this woman, someone comes and says, your daughter is, is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Can you imagine the father's response? Can you imagine his desperation? Has, it's gone from small to worse. His daughter is dead. All that he had hoped for in this healing with Jesus, now gone, all because Jesus decided to stop. But Jesus, overhearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking, taking the child by her hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And when he directed, and, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but she, he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So the servant comes and announces that the daughter has died. All of your hope is now lost. And Jesus' response in compassion says, Do not fear. Only believe and she will be made well. You hear that phrase again? She will be made well. Luke is trying to point us back to in this story what Jesus just said to this woman. Your faith has made you well. And Jesus is saying to this father, your faith will make your daughter well. It will heal her. Jesus' object lesson was this woman, that faith is what you need because you're going to need more faith to realize that I'm about to go raise this girl from the dead. And if you're reading this story wondering, why would, why would Jesus stop? How many times have we actually seen this as we walk through the gospel, right? That Jesus is one on his own timetable, but it should also remind you of Lazarus, Right? Jesus waited three days before he went and raised Lazarus. And why did he do it? To bring glory to God and to grow the faith of those around him. Jesus could have healed this little girl without going to his house. He did it in Luke 7. But in the providence and wisdom of God, he waited. 
so that Jairus would see Jesus' saving power and his faith would grow. You see, for us, we, we have to recognize, like Jesus is telling Jairus, fear is the opposite of faith. Fear leads to a lack of trust, to a lack of control, to worrying about things that can go wrong. All the things that might go wrong in our life, fear can drive this. But faith leads us to trusting in God, trusting in his wisdom, trusting in his plan, trusting in his timing, letting go of control, not worrying about all that can go wrong and submitting ourselves to the plan and will and wisdom of a good father. In every anxious situation, Jesus calls us to put our faith in him and to trust in his sovereignty, his wisdom, and his plan. And so Jarius does. He believes and he trusts and they head back to the house. And what we see is they're walking into this scene. Now, if you're familiar with Jewish family, Jewish history, when somebody had died... They were professional mourners. Their people would go with horns and loud music and they would wail and cry and they, they would make a scene. And so this is what Jesus is walking into. This woman is dead. The mourners are at the house crying. And Jesus sends them out. He sends them out because as we see, he says she's not dead and they all laugh at him. And he does the miraculous. He comes to the girl compassionately and heals her and raises her from the dead. And I love what he says here. Child, arise. In Aramaic, what this means is, little lamb, wake up. And it's the same phrase that her mom or mother would use to wake her up every morning. Jesus is meeting this little child with compassion, calling her to rise and his compassion even focuses on her physical needs as he cares about her well-being and calling for her to be fed. And what's interesting is, unlike last week where he told the demon to go share all that he had done, he tells the mother and father, don't say anything. And there's two reasons I believe he does this. One, it wasn't the time for the people to recognize that he was the true king and messiah. Because there's no way that he's telling these people, don't tell the people outside that your daughter is raised from the dead. Like, like they're not going to go do that, right? But it wasn't the time in which he was to be worshipped as the king and Messiah. That would come. That's what we see in the triumphal entry is Jesus making his announcement that I am king of kings and lord of lords. But one thing that you also should think about in the practicality of what this miracle could produce and it does produce is amazement. There's amazement in the parents, as verse 56 says. And that amazement could overlook her actual physical needs that she needed to be taken care of. And so Jesus, in his compassion and care for this child, tells his parents, tells the parents, pay attention to your daughter. Don't get caught up in amazement just yet. Because your daughter still needs physical care. So take care of her. And I don't want you to miss this, this spiritual reality. And we've been talking about this through and through because it, it is a gospel picture of what happens to every believer in Christ, right? We are healed, we are made clean, but we're also raised from the dead. 
We are brought from death to life. We were once dead, but now we are alive in Christ as we sang this morning. Romans 3.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is what? Eternal life. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 tells us we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. This is all of us. We are like Jairus' daughter in a spiritual reality that we are all spiritually dead and without the grace and mercy of God, that is where we would remain. But Jesus comes with his healing touch and makes us alive in him. It is by faith that we receive this grace. But there's also another reality that Luke points us to, is that this will be our spiritual future when Christ returns. Scripture describes death for the believer as falling asleep. Like this little girl, this will also happen to us as well. Because we know that death is not the end for the believer in Christ. And like Jesus resurrecting on the third day, we too will rise again with him. And how do we know that this will happen? By faith. And this is, again, the whole point of what Luke is trying to show Theophilus as well as us, is that we need to have our faith strengthened so that we can have certainty and assurance that what Jesus says will actually come true. So a question I want to ask this morning. How are you strengthening your faith? Does a story like this challenge you or ask you, do I have a faith like theirs? Do I have a desperation like theirs to seek Jesus, to know Jesus, to be with Jesus. Because as sons and daughters of God, we have access to the throne. This is our right. We can draw near to him. But I want to close with this. Because the first time I read this passage, I was like, man, I'm going to have to answer this question. What do you do when healing doesn't come? right? Because this is the human reality that we all live in in a fallen world. What do you do when healing doesn't come? When you've cried out to Jesus for more than 12 years for healing? What do you do when salvation doesn't come for a loved one who you've been crying out and praying for? What do you do when that loved one passes away? Fill in the blank. What happens when healing doesn't come? And while this is one of my favorite passages in Luke, because it does show the compassion and power of Jesus, I can't help but think, what do we do? We all know the feeling. We've all felt the weight of sin and the effects of fall. And we can read a story like this and cry out, Lord, where is my healing? What am I to do when I am getting a no? How do I have hope? And I want to give you two closing points for how we can have hope. As I've talked about, this letter is written to Theophilus to have certainty and assurance in Jesus. 
this story hopefully would strengthen our faith in him to help us draw near to him and to be able to say that he can, he will, but even if he doesn't, I will trust in his wisdom and I will trust in his character and I will trust in his plan because I know that he is trustworthy. And the second is this, and I believe this has been present throughout these miracles, is that the gospel of Luke consistently points us to the kingdom of God and what it will be like when Christ returns. And when he does, the effects of the fall and the curse of sin will be reversed. So when we look back at these four miracles, we can point to what the kingdom of God will look like. The, the dead will be resurrected. There will be no more pain or shame. There will be no more diseases. There will be no more outcasts. We are all made worthy. Those who torment us, the demons, the, the spiritual realities that we battle every single day will be thrown into the lake. And as Jesus calms the storm for the disciples, we will experience that for eternity with Christ, an eternal peace that as the Chronicles of Narnia ends and says, every day is better than the last. That is what eternity will look like. That is what we are hoping for. And that is how we can draw hope from this passage that even though healing might not happen here, this is not our end. And we can trust in Jesus. And we can draw near to him in our time of need. So as we close with communion, I want to bring up these two characters again. Jairus and this woman. One who has it all, one who's lost it all. And yet Jesus offers his saving and healing touch as they come with desperate faith and trusting in him. And it doesn't stop there. Like this girl, he brings us into spiritual healing. Gives us a new life. Transforms our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. Gives us his righteousness. Calls us worthy. And he resurrects us out of our sin and death. So when we come to communion, this is what we're celebrating. This is what we are rejoicing in every single week, that we are worthy, that Christ has made us clean, that we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God, and we are no longer defined by our sin, our shame, our past, because Jesus has finished all that we need on the cross, and he has defeated sin and death as he, was, as he resurrected three days later. And this bread and this juice is a sign of that beautiful covenant that God has made for us in Christ. And every week we take it to be reminded of this beautiful covenant. Be reminded of who we are because of Christ's death and resurrection. So I would invite you to come and grab this communion. And let it be an assurance to you that your spiritual life is now one of cleanliness and that you have been made alive in Christ. And you can celebrate that as you take this bread and you drink this juice, that you are spotless and you are clean. So I'm going to invite you to come and grab the elements, and then I'll give us instruction, and we'll partake together.